together and saying the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. Would you please stand and join me this morning? I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. You may be seated. What we have just done is not without controversy. I know of a pastor who removed the flag from his church. He said it was a sacrilege to have the flag in the church because the church is for God alone. Uh, there is a blogger by the name of Benjamin Corey who uh, agrees with that pastor. Listen to what Mr. Corey said. When we place the American flag on the stage in the church sanctuary, it sends the message that the space is set aside for God and something else. Intended or not, we give to others what should be set apart for God alone, and this is anything but holy. Uh, you may know that uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that we should never salute old glory at any time, anywhere. Uh, they say that nations are institutions of Satan, that he rules, and therefore we should never pledge our allegiance to any country at all. By the way, that's why saying the pledge of allegiance in school every morning, as I did growing up, has now been banned because of objections like those. Now that leads to a, a really simple question this morning. What is the Christian's relationship and responsibility to the government? When I stood every morning in school saying the Pledge of Allegiance, was that wrong? How many of you grew up saying the Pledge every morning as school started? Okay. Uh, the vast majority in this service. And then we have to ask this. Is having a flag in church, is that a sacrilege? Because the church belongs to God and God alone. Now this is the issue that Jesus was confronted with when the Pharisees and the Herodians got together during Holy Week to attempt to trap him and discredit him. And in that dialogue with those two groups, Jesus uttered one of the most famous sayings in all the Bible. I doubt there's anyone in our country at all who does not know this very famous saying. Let's read it together. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What's interesting is the word render there, it is a financial term. And it means to give back or to pay off. So that Jesus is saying to us, we have two allegiances that we are to pay up. 
In fact, if we could put this in the form of two questions, what Jesus is really asking is, what is Caesar's and what is God's? Now, one of the things you discover as you work through the Gospels is Jesus is not only a wonderful Savior, but he is an amazing teacher. He is an amazing teacher. And today we're going to see the depth and uh, profoundness of his insight as he teaches us our responsibility in these two areas. This morning, as we look at God's Word, and we are coming back to our series in the Gospel of Mark, I want to bring a message entitled, I Pledge Allegiance. And I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark 12, and let me read for you verses 13 through 17. In the Pew Bible, it's around page 1008 or 9. I would encourage you very much to turn there this morning, and you follow along as I read. Here's God's Word to us this morning. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Can you believe the hypocrisy? Sometimes as you read the Bible, you just got to stop and shake your head. And then they continued. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in your wisdom, you have instituted authorities over us. And we confess that we often have a rebellious heart. We want to live life on our own terms, unfettered by those who would direct us and be above us. And so we need to understand your instruction about the proper way to live under the authorities that you have instituted and then, Lord, we thank you that you are the greatest authority of all. And life works best when we are living under your authority. That's the way you planned it. Help us to see your wisdom in this today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
As we open this passage of Scripture, we uh, learn, first of all, that Jesus is teaching us we owe allegiance to governing authorities. Now, we need to understand a little background here to this conversation to know what is going on. In Jesus' time, Judea, where Jerusalem was, was ruled directly by Rome. It had been declared a Roman province with Roman government. Now, the reason for this is Archelaus, who was the son of Herod the Great, was such a poor ruler in following his father that Rome had to step in directly over the province of Judea. You may remember that the very first Roman governor was a man by the name of of Cyrenius, who ruled Judea when Jesus was born. The very first thing that he did as ruler of Judea was to take a census for the purpose of taxing the people. All of us know about that in the infancy narrative of the gospel and Jesus' birth. Uh, Most people accepted that tax as being an inevitable necessity, but there was a man by the name of Judas the Galilean. And here's what he cried out. Taxation is no better than slavery. And he led a revolt against the Roman government that was very quickly crushed. If you want to turn sometime to Acts chapter 5 and verse 37, you can read about Judas the Galilean. But ever since that experience, this cry, no tribute to the Romans, became the rallying cry of fanatical Jewish patriots. By the way, does anybody think this sounds a little bit like our own history? It's not unlike the American colonists who became angry when King George III levied a tea tax. And you remember the cry that went went up? No taxation without representation. And the Boston Tea Party ensued. Unfair taxation was the last straw and the American Revolution erupted against the English. Now, this is about 30 years later, and this issue of taxation was still a burning issue. In fact, some zealots refused to pay any taxes that went to the Roman Empire. And so, understanding this debate that is going on, The Pharisees and the Herodians raised this issue of taxes, and Mark here is very, very insightful. He says they did it to trap Jesus and to discredit him. By the way, do you know what was usually true about the Pharisees and the Herodians? They were usually enemies of each other. Uh, Do you know how you get enemies to cooperate with one another? You give them a greater enemy, don't you? And what an amazing thing here. 
There are two great forces that will bring people together. Those forces are love and hatred. And these two groups hate Jesus so much that they come together on this occasion. Now, who were they? Well, the Pharisees we could call nationalists. They were the conservatives. And they disliked Roman rule very much. We could call them the right-wingers. The Herodians were followers of the Herods, and they were in favor of the puppet kings of Rome in Herod's line. They were liberal, they accepted the Roman rule, and we could call them, got to make sure to get on the right side here, we could call them left-wingers, okay? Now it's interesting, two questions that they bring to Jesus bring out their two different positions. Look at verse 14. Their first question is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? That would have been the Pharisees' concern. You see, they objected to the tax on the basis of a verse like Deuteronomy 17.15. Look at what this verse in the Old Testament says. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. And it galled the Pharisees that somebody was set up to rule them from Rome. They rejected that from the religious side. But notice the second question in verse 14. Should we pay or not? That was the Herodians' concern. You see, they favored pacifying the Romans. They looked at it from the practical side. It's better to go along to what? To get a law. And so what Jesus is facing here are two haters of him who are smacking their lips. That's what they're doing. They thought, we've got Jesus this time. We've got him right where we want him. If he says, yes, we should pay taxes, he will antagonize his followers, undermine his claims, because in their mind, no true Messiah could ever sanction pagan rule. But if he said no, they'll report him to Rome. Rome will come in and crush him, just like they did Judas the Galilean. And so they thought they had Jesus between the proverbial rock and the hard place. There was no way out. Jesus is trapped. And then Jesus, as we have seen, in his incredible brilliance, asks them, 
bring me a denarius. Bring me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Now in this modern age, we can see exactly what a denarius was like. This was the Roman denarius. It was about the size of a dime. And the heads said this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The tales said, chief priest, which was a claim to deity. Now we have to understand the ancient view of coins to understand why Jesus asking for this denarius was such a brilliant, brilliant thing. In the ancient world, coinage is the sign of power. The first thing that rulers did when they took over an area was they would issue coins to show they were in control. Where the coin was valid, <clears throat> the king's power was valid. In fact, the king's power was measured by the area in which his coins were accepted. And because his head and his inscription was on the coin, it was considered the king's personal property. Now let me explain to you what Jesus then is saying as he asks for this coin. One of my old professors in combination with uh, Bible teacher and student William Barclay helps us understand this. Here's what Jesus is saying. By using the coinage of Tiberius, you in any event recognize his political power in Palestine. You acknowledge his authority and the benefits of the civil government it represented, and consequently you acknowledge the obligation to pay taxes. Beyond all of that, the coinage is his own because it has his name on it. By giving it back to him, you are giving to him what in any event is his own. What does Jesus say? Government is ordained by God. And therefore, we have the obligation to give it our allegiance. What we did this morning, as we pledged allegiance to the flag, that is God's will. How many of you were holding your breath on that? That is God's will. Now as we think about this for a moment, it's important for us to flesh this out. What does the Bible teach us are the duties of our allegiance to the country in which we live? And let me give to us uh, a number of them. Number one, 
The Bible teaches us that we owe respect to the leaders who hold office in our country. We may not necessarily respect the person, but we are to respect the office that they hold. I will never forget many years ago, uh, the mayor of Detroit called President Ronald Reagan prune face. Do you remember that, some of you? Remember that? That revealed two things about that mayor. Number one, it revealed the low-brow character of the mayor. That he would make fun of somebody's appearance. But number two, <clears throat> it disobeyed the Bible. Because the Bible clearly says, honor those in authority, 1 Peter 2.17. And we never have the right to be disrespectful, disparaging, or dishonoring, even though we may not necessarily respect the person, we ought to respect the office that they hold. Secondly, um, as we think about this, uh, this also means we have the duty of participation. Do you know in some elections, large numbers of Christians stayed home and did not vote? And because of who was elected, greater damage was done to our country morally because of those who stayed home and did not vote and could have changed the direction of our country in terms of the moral outcome that ensued. Do you know what Billy Graham one time said? Bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. Bad politicians are elected by good people who don't vote. And sometimes we, we raise the question, well, there are no good politicians anymore. But that's not true. There are some good politicians. In the last couple of weeks, I just spoke with Ed McBroom, who's running for state representative. You, you cannot find a finer Christian man than Ed McBroom. Many of you know, in his years over at Northern, uh, he came here to Bethel. And we had the privilege of getting to know him. It's been wonderful to follow uh, the political career of this milk farmer. In fact, he said to me, we won't be able to stay very long where we're at because we've got to get home and finish milking the cows. What a fine man. And there are good politicians, and we do have the responsibility of participation. Thirdly, we have the responsibility of prayer. I want you to read with me uh, these verses from 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Would you read them with me? I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. 
Did you notice these verses tell us not only that we are to pray, but how we are to pray? Did you notice that? We are to pray for officials who will act in a way that keeps the peace. Because when law in order is the order of the day, then Christians can go about living their lives and sharing the gospel. So this verse says, pray for everyone who's in authority and particularly pray that they will enact laws and make decisions that will keep the peace so that we can serve God in godliness and holiness as we do His work in our country. What an insightful two verses that is. Number four. The Bible says that we owe obedience. Listen to these verses in Romans 13. Let me just read the first two. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist, they will incur judgment. You know what this is? This is Paul's expansion on what Jesus taught when he said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Romans 13 is a further development of what we see here in Mark chapter 12. Um, I asked my wife if I had the privilege of sharing this this morning, and she is so gracious. She said that she would. It's okay. Uh, I was with Ellen when she got her first speeding ticket. We were married two months. She had had over 15 years of driving without a speeding ticket. She has not had a speeding ticket since. I've said to her, should have never married me. Should have never married me. But you know what happened? We were driving at my end of town, my neck of the woods. And she thought the speed limit on uh, US uh, 46, I believe it is, was um, uh, higher than it actually was. And so we got caught. She was, she was speeding. Um, only ticket she's ever had in her life. Now, you know what we didn't do? We didn't argue with the police officer. We, we didn't say, uh, <clears throat> come on, give us a break. We're, we're newlyweds. Can't you tell we're in love? We didn't say, she's not familiar with this end of town. She, she, uh, she didn't know the speed limit. We didn't do any of that. We may have thought it, okay, but we didn't do any of that. No, instead, we were grateful. The officer was doing his job to keep everyone that weekend safe. And you know what? Even when we get stopped, we ought to be thankful that we are living in a country of law and order. That should be our attitude. 
Now, there's at least one other duty, and I'm sure you wanted me to not bring this one up. Should I do this? Everybody's saying, Pastor, can we stop the sermon right here? <laughs> what does the Bible say? Pay tax to everyone to whom tax is due. Many years ago in Lower Michigan, we goofed on our taxes, and we underpaid. Because pastors are self-employed, this can happen on a regular basis. Our taxes can become very complicated. And I told our district executive minister, Pastor Andy Hoosman, about what had happened. And then, tongue-in-cheek, I said to him, they'll never know. And he responded, you know. And all God's people also responded, God knows. And to not pay what we owe, even if we could get away with it, is a God issue. It's a God issue. By the way, did you hear about the person who wrote <clears throat> a letter to the IRS and said, Dear sirs, my conscience has been bothering me, and you will find an enclosed check for $175 for overdue taxes. P.S., if my conscience still bothers me, I will send a check for the rest. <laughs> if your conscience is right now bothering you, you've got some work to do. Because Jesus is clearly establishing the fact that we owe allegiance to governing authorities. And we owe them allegiance at least in these ways. But now Jesus did not finish, did he? What's the rest of the statement? Render to God... What is God's? This is why they marveled, brothers and sisters, because what Jesus was now doing was he was saying we owe allegiance to God. You see, Jesus didn't stop with Caesar. He went on to say, render to God the things that are God's. Now, we need to notice here in verse 17 two very important things. Jesus was saying Caesar is not God, and therefore he is subject to God. Jesus put Caesar in his place, and all God's people said, Amen. What was Jesus doing? 
as the coin bore the image of Caesar, whose image do we bear? God's. Do you know what that means? People are God's coinage. Let's uh, read together the verse that we uh, know teaches us this, Genesis 1.27. Read it with me. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What a brilliant application. Jesus is holding the coin that belongs to a king, and he points to them, and he does to us, and he asks this question, whose coin are you? Whose image is stamped on you? Gold was Caesar's treasure. People are God's treasure. Gold has Caesar's image on it. You have God's. Give what belongs to Caesar to Caesar, but give yourself to God. You belong to Him. Now think about this. We are valuable to God. We belong to God. And we owe our allegiance to God. By the way, can I just drop this in here? I don't necessarily plan to say this. What a tragic thing that our young people in schools are being taught that they do not belong to a Creator because that Creator does not exist. Think about what that does to human dignity. Think about what that does to the concept that God loves us and has a plan for our life and wants us to know Him in a personal relationship. How important it is for our children to come here and to know You are God's coin. You are valuable to God. He loves you. And He wants you to give your life to Him. How important that is. Now, what this does for us then is it tells us what the limits of our allegiance to government are. And as we bring this message to a conclusion, I think it's very important that we put these two in conjunction with one another. And what happens when the two conflict, when our allegiance to God conflicts with our allegiance to government, what does the Bible say then? And by the way, we may be more and more heading into those days. Is that not true? Yes, it is. And so notice the limits of allegiance to government. Number one, we are not to give allegiance to government when we are asked to violate a command of God. In Acts chapter 5, they said to the apostles, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, you judge whether it's right for us not to do this. 
We cannot help but uh, keep uh, preaching about what we have seen and heard. And then he uttered this very wonderful statement in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. And therefore, when the government asks us to violate a command of God, then we are to disobey. Second, when we are asked to do an immoral act, you remember in Exodus 1 and 2, the Hebrew midwives were told, when the Hebrew women give birth to a son, you are to take that son and kill it. And remember the Hebrew midwives disobeyed that immoral command. In fact, Moses' mother kept him and hid him until her crying, his crying, uh, could not be hid anymore. And that's when she put him in a basket and sent him out into the Nile. Do you know what a modern-day application of this would be? China's enforced abortion policy to control population growth. That is an immoral command. And all Chinese women and their husbands have the duty, when they are pregnant, to disobey that command. Here's a third one. Number three, when asked to go against conscience. Romans 14.23 says this, whatever is not of faith is sin. So if I cannot do something without trusting God that it is the right thing to do, for me to do that and violate my conscience is a sin. And the Bible says we should never do anything that violates our informed conscience by the Word of God. Do you know why we hold an English Bible in our hands today? Because Bible translators like William Tyndale believed that the English people ought to have the Bible in their own language. And when Mary, Queen of Scotland, issued an edict that it was against the law to translate the Bible into English, William Tyndale's and others said, that is to go against our conscience because the Bible should be in everybody's language and they defied the order to give us the Bible in English. Aren't we grateful this morning? The greatest statement of this came from Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation. He defied the state church of Germany, and he was called to account by the leaders. Do you know what he appealed to? He appealed to his conscience. And this is what Luther said. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. 
Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. And we are in this morning a Protestant church with English Bibles because of men like Tyndale and Luther who said because of these reasons we must disobey the government. I wonder how many of you um, were aware as we said the pledge to the flag today that there's another prominent flag over here. That's the Christian flag. When I was a boy in our vacation Bible school, we would often say the pledge to the Christian flag. And here's the pledge to the Christian flag. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty to all who believe. That allegiance is our first priority. We are to give allegiance to the government that we live under. It was God's will what we did earlier. But whenever there is a conflict between the two allegiances for the Christian, it is this allegiance that must come first. We must obey God rather than men. And now you can see the brilliance of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In a statement that silenced his critics, caused them to marvel, he put both of these in their beautiful order for all time. Can we say, Praise the Lord this morning. Praise the Lord. And how about if we do this? Let's stand and let's give our allegiance to our Savior. Would you join me as we pledge allegiance to the Christian flag? Let's say it together. I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the Savior for whose kingdom it stands. One Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again with life and liberty to all who believe. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. And we thank you for the great country that we now live in. And Father, we do pray for our country. We are concerned for the future of our country because these two allegiances seem to be lost on many people. 
And it's only when we give ourselves to God as His coin, as His image, that we can then govern properly and relate properly to those who govern over us as instituted by God. And we pray for a great revival in America today. We pray for the turning of people's hearts to the Savior. We pray, Father, that the materialism and the immorality and the abuse of our liberties and freedoms that are so rapidly taking us in the wrong direction would be repented of. And people would recognize that Jesus is the one and only true Savior. And it's only in Him that we can truly have life and liberty. Help us to set the example. Help us to lead the way. Lord, help us in all of our relationships with the authorities around us, whether it be our parents at home, our boss at work, the officer we see on the street corner, the officials that are leading our local government and state and and national government day by day. May we pray for them. Be the best citizens that we can be. We pray for men like Ed McBroom and others who are willing to wade into the arena so that they might lead in a way that honors you. Lord, bless them. And we pray that in your good providence, they might be elected to places where they can make the decisions that would help us to live in a land of peace and safety so that we can serve the gospel of Jesus Christ in peace and tranquility. How we love you, Lord, today. We sing in just a moment of our devotion to Christ and then to His ordinances. For Jesus' sake, Amen.